Coming up this hour, can you be a pro-life evangelical who votes for Joe Biden? Uh, And then Matt Sorens from World Relief is going to join us. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. I am normally joined by Ian Simpkins. uh, But again, as we've been saying all week, Ian Simpkins is not with us this week. Uh, Ian is on vacation, enjoying some family time. He'll be back with us on Monday. Uh, But we are thrilled that you have chosen to join us. Just a reminder where you can find all the interviews we've been doing this week, all the content. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, You can find us online doing all this from memory, 1160hope.com. Uh, and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. We certainly are very thankful to those of you who do listen to the podcast. We know that's a lot of you out there. That's how you consume the show. If that's you, sometime out there in the future listening today, uh, go ahead, if you just would, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review. That actually does help us. It helps people find the show more easily, and it just makes us feel good. We just, you know, just makes us feel good. So glad for you guys who do that. So, uh, hey, if you didn't know this, there's an election coming up. We are all just two and a half weeks away. Uh, we are in crazy season right now. Uh, and one of the interesting questions out there, uh, you might remember uh, Robert Jeffers, a well-known pastor and uh, radio host from uh, out in Dallas, He has said this, Jack Graham said this, uh, John MacArthur said this. They essentially, in different ways, have said you cannot be uh, a Christian and vote for Joe Biden. And oftentimes, the reason for that is couched around uh, abortion and what Joe Biden will want to do, what a Biden administration, and particularly his vice presidential running mate, Kamala Harris, who has 100% pro-choice uh, backing right now uh, or rating uh, in her political career. Uh, she is she is very liberally pro-choice. So the thought process goes that you cannot be uh, uh, an evangelical person, uh, evangelical Christian who believes in the sanctity of life and vote for Joe Biden. And uh, to give some context or some greater depth to Joe Biden's thoughts on abortion, this was at a town hall meeting the other day. I want you to hear this. Go ahead and play that. I knew whenever I was graduating high school and entering college that I wanted to obtain my degree and start a career before starting a family. Having access to birth control and safe reproductive health care was imperative in making that um, true for me. So um, considering the new Supreme Court nomination of Amy um, Coney Barrett, what are your particular plans to protect women's reproductive rights in the U.S.? Number one, we don't know exactly what she will do, although the expectation is that she may very well move to overview, overrule Roe. And but the only thing, the only responsible response to that would be to pass legislation making Roe the law of the land. That's what I would do. So very interesting. Joe Biden has said uh, because of what the Supreme Court's going to look like, I, I think that what we need to do for Roe versus Wade is to make it law. Uh, and so you have to understand that the Democratic Party, it used to be their their abortion position position, even under President Clinton, uh, had to talk about safe and rare as possible. And um, 
that's no longer it. And so the thought process goes, uh, because abortion is such a big deal, and you, if you've ever listened to this show, you know that Ian and I think this is a huge deal uh, and something that we want to see uh, taken care of, that uh, you can't vote for Joe Biden. So with that as backdrop, I want to read something at the Christian Post. Uh, this was an op-ed written by Ron Sider and Richard Mao. Uh, Ron Sider and Richard Mao. Uh, Sider is a president emeritus of Evangelicals for Social Action, and Richard Mao is president emeritus of Fuller Seminary. And so they wrote, we are pro-life evangelicals for Biden. Let me just read some of this. Prominent evangelical leaders have just released a statement urging pro-life evangelicals to vote for Joe Biden. The signers include John Huffman, board of chair of Emeritus of Christianity Day, Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline, uh, Jerasha Duford, uh, Billy Graham's granddaughter, Brendan, uh, Brenda Salter McNeil, author and speaker, uh, John Perkins. Many of you will know John Perkins from the Christian Community Development Association the two authors of this piece, and a number of former presidents of evangelical universities. They're diverse uh, signees of this, a Trump voter in uh, 2016, a lifelong Republican who refused to vote for Trump or Clinton, people who never before uh, in their life publicly endorsed a presidential candidate. Their statement acknowledges this, that as as pro-life evangelicals, we disagree with Vice President Biden and the Democratic platform on the issue of abortion. But we believe that a biblically shaped commitment to the sanctity of human life compels us to a consistent ethic of life that affirms the sanctity of human life from beginning to end. The statement points out that many problems that better politics could correct violate the sanctity of human life, those being poverty, lack of health care, racism, and climate change. They say all kill persons created in the image of God. They say these are pro-life issues. Uh, going on later, they say, we want to be clear. We mourn abortion and are committed to work to reduce the number of abortions. But three things are important. This, again, is in their op-ed at the Christian Post. First, if Donald Trump wins on November 3rd and the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, not a great deal will change, they say. Gallup poll after Gallup poll shows that about 75% of the American people want abortion to be legal, although fortunately a majority also want to see restrictions. So when the individual states recover the right to write the laws on abortion, abortion will remain legal for most Americans. Second, The most common reason women give for abortion is the financial difficulty of another child. Knowing that, uh, we appreciate the fact that a number of Democratic proposals would significantly alleviate the financial burden, accessible health care for all citizens, affordable child care, minimum wage that lifts people out of poverty. Third, not just abortion, but poverty, lack of health care, racism and climate change are all pro-life issues, they write. The statement notes that the official public policy document of the National Association of Evangelicals says Faithful evangelical civic engagement and witness must have a biblically balanced agenda. Therefore, the new pro-life evangelicals for Biden document says that, quote, we must oppose one. We must oppose one issue political thinking because it lacks biblical balance. And and the uh, op-ed ends this way. For these reasons, this is Sider and Mao. For these reasons, we believe that on balance, Joe Biden's policies are more consistent with the biblically shaped ethic of life than those of Donald Trump. Therefore, even as we continue to urge different policies on abortion, we urge evangelicals to elect Joe Biden as president. People can add their signature or read more of this at prolifeevangelicalsforbiden.com. That's Ron Sider. Uh, from Evangelicals for Social Action and Richard Mao from Fuller Seminary and many others have signed on. I wanted to start and just read that because uh, this is 
at the forefront of what causes people to vote, many Christians to vote in a very specific way. And so I wanted to put this out in front of you without saying I agree with them or disagree. What I want to know is what do you think? Uh, because uh, this is uh, something that is probably scandalous to a lot of people out there in the church world, in the evangelical world. People go, that can't be. We've got to vote for the person who will put up the most safeguards for abortion. And I think that's a legitimate way to go in here. But what do you think about what Sider and Mao and others have written here that the most pro-life uh, from womb to tomb for issues of poverty, health care and other things that actually Joe Biden's policies are going to help with abortion more. Uh, I would be curious to know what you think about that. You can find this at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Let us know what you think. We would love to hear more. Well, coming up next, uh, a friend of the show, Matt Sorens from World Relief, is going to join us for a couple segments. We're going to talk about all sorts of things with Matt. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AIM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us on this beautiful afternoon. Ian Simpkins normally uh, sitting here with me. We usually do this show together, but Ian's enjoying a vacation with his family this week. Ian will be back with us next week. I'm assuming all rested and uh, full of opinions. So we're looking forward to having Ian back with us. But one of the things we've been doing this week while Ian is out is just trying to bring in as many guests, ministry leaders, pastors, authors, uh, from the area. Uh, and sometimes we bring back people who have, uh, been on b- before. And with that in mind, we like to call these people our friends of the show. Matt Sorens, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy at World Relief is joining us yet again. Matt, thanks so much for coming back on and joining us again. Yeah, I was happy to be here. Yeah, we really do appreciate your time. We love having you on. For those people who may not remember you or haven't heard the times you've been on in the past, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah. Um, so I live in Aurora, Illinois, out in the western suburbs with my wife. And as of uh, four weeks ago, my f- four children. So we are have a busy household right now. Congratulations. And thank you. Uh, I uh, work with World Relief, which is a Christian ministry that uh, works all over the world, empowering local churches to serve the vulnerable. And my work is really focused on the side of our work within the United States, where we work with local churches to serve uh, refugees and other immigrants, including yeah. here in Chicagoland, uh, both in the city and um, from in Aurora and in Carroll Stream and the surrounding areas. Awesome. Well, how do you guys do that? Remind us how you engage uh, churches and what it means for a church to be mobilized with you guys. Yeah, um, we're, World Relief is one of and has been since like the 70s is one of the national agencies that works with the U.S. State Department to resettle refugees, which means our government decides who is a refugee, meaning someone who's fled persecution for particular reasons and should be uh, considered for resettlement. Our role picks up when that family lands at usually O'Hare Airport. And uh, because our goal is not just to, to serve that family well, but also to empower the church, uh, our, you know, we aim to be connecting those families as they arrive to friends from the community who are usually volunteers from local churches who will you know, augment the support that our staff gives in helping those families get on their feet, learn a new language, uh, very quickly find employment, uh, you know, get their kids into school. Of course, all of this is even more complicated in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, yeah. And the number of refugees arriving are, are, are actually this month, none have arrived and we'll maybe get to that. But even in, in the last few months, it's been lower arrival numbers, but still some families arriving. And then we also serve a broad range of other immigrants who, who don't necessarily come as refugees. So we're not necessarily connected to them from the day they arrive, 
but they can come to us or maybe through their church, they get connected to us and, and we can help provide a, a whole range of support services to help people integrate into the community. Awesome. Uh, so non-COVID times, help me understand very basically for people out there, uh, how does a refugee uh, end up in the United States of America? So what's that process to them getting here? Maybe how long and what do they go through? And then what do they go through once they're here? Yeah. So the one thing to know is most refugees in the world will never come to the United States. And that's mm-hmm. not a new policy. That's it's always been that way. Um, the UN estimates that there's about 26 million refugees in the world. At a normal time, the United States takes somewhere around 95,000 per year. Um, it's been a non-normal time for the last few years. So we just finished the federal fiscal year with fewer than 12,000 refugees. So wow. you can do the math on 12,000 out of 26 million. It's well less than one-tenth of one percent of the world's refugees who, who get that option of resettlement. But those who do are us- are supposed to be selected based on unique vulnerabilities. I mean, often these are people who in that second context that they were living in a refugee camp or trying to scrape by in a city somewhere, usually without work authorization, were really maybe not going to make it um, or who have unique health situations or whatever, the, you know, or ongoing persecution even once they've left their country. Those folks get to the United States and First of all, they're usually incredibly grateful for the opportunity to be here, and they are almost always end up becoming very proud Americans. But it is still a really um, difficult journey to adjustment, learning a language, um, you know, paying rent and um, adjusting to a new school system for kids, a new medical and health system. Um, so even before COVID, it was challenging, and that's where we believe so strongly that, that the church has such an important opportunity to come alongside these families and individuals. Yeah. So you were telling, I, I didn't realize that this existed, but you were, uh, you sent us some stuff about the annual refugee ceiling. Most people like myself probably don't even know what that is uh, and the role the president and his uh, administration plays in just deciding how many refugees. Could you explain to us what the annual refugee ceiling is and what's going on right now with that? Yeah. So under the law, this is the Refugee Act of 1980, uh, the president has the, the authority and the responsibility on an annual basis right around the first of the fiscal year, which is October 1st, to set the ceiling. That is to say the maximum number of refugees who will be allowed into the United States in the coming year. So again, I mentioned the historical average is right around 95,000 for that ceiling. Um, it's been as high as 142,000 under President George H.W. Bush. Uh, four years ago, it was set at 110,000. And then it's just gone down every year since. Last year, it was set at 18,000. And now we're, you know, a few weeks in, a couple weeks into a new federal fiscal year. It actually hasn't been set formally, but the reported recommendation that the president is considering is 15,000, which is Mm -hmm. the lowest it's been in history. Um, And one of the, uh, we're still hoping the president will reconsider that. That's just a recommendation from his staff. So he could up that. Um, But one of the areas we've been really focused on at World Relief is, reminding people that this impacts a whole range of vulnerable groups of people. But many refugees, obviously all refugees fled a credible fear of persecution. That's what defines a refugee. For many of them, the persecution they experienced was based on their faith. And for many of them, that was their Christian faith. And so we actually did a report a few uh, weeks, I guess a couple months back now with Open Doors USA uh, called Closed Doors that looks at just the really dramatic reduction in the number of persecuted Christians, along with other persecuted religious minority groups that have been able to find safety in the U.S. in the last few years. So it's a decline. It, we look at the Christian refugees from the top 50 countries where Christians face persecution, according to Open Doors World Watch List. And that number has declined by about 90% from 2015 uh, to this year. Wow. Could you help us understand 
uh, maybe it's through stories or maybe it's just through statistics. Like, I don't think most people in America, myself included, go even realize that there's a lot of Christian persecution around the world. But as you said, there really is. Uh, that that is a global issue. Could you help us just understand that more? What is what are worldwide Christians facing in the world right now? Yeah, it's such an important point because I think uh, not to dismiss concerns around religious liberty that we may face as Christians in the United States, but we're talking about a, a, a different animal in terms of what persecution means. And we're literally talking about people who were told, if you stay here and continue to you know, say you're a Christian, we're going to kill you. And sometimes it was a family member who was killed, or you will not be able to have, basically exist in society. You won't be able to get a job. You won't be able to have your kids go to school. So the groups we've seen in this area that are most in that situation, I would say um, there's a, a number of different Burmese ethnic minorities. So Burma, also known as Myanmar, is in Southeast Asia. Some largely Buddhist country, a, a very harsh authoritarian government, which basically just does not tolerate uh, religious or ethnic minorities. And often those things go together. It's a number of ethnic minority groups that are mostly Christian, like the, the Chin or the Karen. And also um, the, the Rohingya, who are mostly Muslim. Um, they're not tolerated either. And are, I think it's fair to describe what's happening to them as a genocide. Um, so we've uh, resettled many of those folks into, the, into Chicago and the suburbs over a number of years. Uh, more than 100,000 Burmese refugees have come to the U.S. nationally um, in the last decade. Um, about 70% of them have been Christians and largely Baptists. Um, a lot of these folks trace their wow. sort of family of faith back to Adoniram Judson, the Baptist missionary who, you know, Judson University and other institutions are named wow. after. Okay. He brought the gospel to, to Burma, and those people have held on to that faith and passed it on to their children for a couple, few generations now. But the government doesn't tolerate that, and many, many of them have been forced to flee their homes, and then many of them even outside the country, often to Thailand where they're in camps, sometimes for a decade or longer. Some have gone to Malaysia. Um, it is just a really horrific situation and one that, you know, frankly, the American church has so much to learn from those brothers and sisters mm -hmm. in Christ who have been really tested by fire and know what it means to follow Jesus joyfully in the midst of hardship. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, having grown up and living in the in America here, you just don't even think about it sometimes. And, and that's why I love having you on to be like having our minds reminded or expanded to know what's going on. Well, that's Matthew Sorens. Uh, Matt is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy at World Relief, uh, also the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. And we're thrilled Matt is going to continue to join us here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Oh, you often join, usually joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is out this week. He'll be back with us next week. Uh, and as Ian is gone, uh, we've been having as many people in to just talk and to uh, just have good conversations with. And with that in mind, we're, we're really thrilled to welcome back Matthew Sorens. Matthew is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy at World Relief, as well as the National Coordinator of the Evangelical Immigration Table. Uh, and so, Matt, I, I, I saw in the news the other day, I forget where I was reading, might have been Christianity Today or somewhere, they were talking about World Relief being part of this organization that put out a statement uh, called A Call to Civic Responsibility for the Health of the nations. Could you tell us everything about that? What, what is it? Uh, what was it for? Who are some of the people who signed on to that? Yeah. So it's probably a few weeks back. Um, and we were having a conversation with some colleagues at the national association of evangelicals, which is our parent organization at world relief about how it just has felt like in the midst of this election season, it's just uniquely 
polarizing and contentious. And it, it feels like it's hard to just have a reasonable conversation. And, and that's true even among Christians. Uh, it's, you know, things have just become so tense. And we were reminded, you know, years ago, it was 2004, that the, the National Association of Evangelicals did this really helpful um, document guide called For the Health of the Nation, looking at how do we apply our Christian faith to public policy? And not in a partisan way. And we are very explicitly acknowledging here that there are evangelical Christians who are Democrats and Republicans and independents and probably every other party. Um, that is, you know, to be an evangelical Christian is not synonymous with a, a political affiliation because our uh, that title is defined by our theology and by what we believe about God, about the Bible, um, not about you know a party platform. But we thought it would be helpful to both to remind those within the church of that. And also to, you know, we're really conscious of our witness to those outside of the church um, who I think have often misunderstood what it means to be an evangelical Christian in recent years and maybe for a long time. So we did this statement that we put together and people can read it at for the health of the nation.com. And we actually ran it as an ad in the Washington post um, mm-hmm. last week. And so of course that got a lot of attention and we invited some of our Friends, leaders at partner churches, you know, leaders of Christian organizations and Christian colleges, um, you know, some Ed Setzer at the Billy Graham Center, Wheaton College helped us out with that. And a number of denominational leaders, Russell Moore with the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, um, Gabe Salguero with the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, a bunch of different Christian leaders who basically said, this is something we want to affirm and we want to put our names by to remind this American society what it means to be an evangelical Christian. Hmm. Uh, I'm curious, I'm sure it's been across the board, but what's the response been that you guys have heard as people have read this and digested it? You know, it's been really gratifying in some ways. Just, I don't know, maybe I've sometimes felt like, uh, you know, I don't always recognize the version of my faith that I see on television. Um, <laughs> and to have so many people basically write to us and say, wow, this this is the sort of Christian I am. I'm, I'm comfortable with this label. This is what it means. Hmm. Uh, you know, this uh, set of theological convictions. And we really set it up we wanted to, you know, I don't not to be provocative, but to be really frank, expressing some repentance for areas where the evangelical church in the United States has not always been faithful to the call that God has given us to love him and to love our neighbors. And especially in terms of opposing unjust systems that impact um, people of color, impact women, impact the unborn, impact immigrants and refugees. So we've started with that kind of focus on repentance and then looking at how do we renew our commitment to a biblically balanced uh, set of issues. So, you know, the a concern for being pro-life is certainly on there. I think mm-hmm. that's something that as Christian to believe that human life is made in the image of God is a core biblical principle. Uh, but also looking at other issues as well. How do we care for God's creation? How do we uh, be seekers of peace as we're called to be peacemakers and apply that to some of the foreign policy dynamics? How do we think about those who are vulnerable, including refugees and victims of human trafficking and others? How do we uphold religious liberty, uh, not not only for ourselves, but for others as well? We believe that God has put it on each human being to decide for ourselves how and if we would follow him, and that that's not a decision that the state can make. So um, we you know, we made that sort of statement of, of renewal of commitment, and then just really resolving to be people who seek justice, who uphold that comprehensive pro-life perspective from, from womb to tomb. And who are not co-opted in any way by a political agenda. That are what guides us is the Bible. What guides us is our faith, and not any party's platform. Oh, that's really good. As you said, people can read that at forthehealthofthenation.com. That's for the health 
www.thenation.com. And I, I'm, I'm trying to remember if we've asked you this before, but let me tee this one up for you because I'm guessing you probably feel pretty strongly about this. There is a wing of people who will say, we as the church, we shouldn't be worried about social justice and social issues. We just need to preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. Everything else will take care of itself. And uh, we don't. We shouldn't be getting ourselves into all these other things. Uh, I'm guessing you probably have strong feelings when you've heard that. What, what, what would your response be as people kind of put that out there? Yeah. You know, I mean, I always go back to the Great Commission, which is to, in Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to do all that I've commanded you. So if that's the gospel, if that's sort of our gospel charge um, to make disciples, teaching them all that Christ has commanded us, that includes a command to seek justice. Um, that's, you know, so clear. I think the gospel of Luke is incredibly clear on that and other parts of the gospels as well. Sometimes, actually, you know, an interesting thing, I, I go to a Spanish speaking church and sometimes I think even our language helps us to avoid some of those clear instructions. And when you read in Spanish, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In Spanish, that's translated as busquen primero el reino de Dios y su justicia. Seek first the kingdom of God and his justice. Mm. And it's actually really interesting, you know, about the scholars and there's a good scholarly debate on, well, which of those is a better translation? And the best conclusion I've seen on that, I think Tim Keller writes about this in Generous Justice. Uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff, who's a Christian philosopher, has talked about this too. But in in the old, both the Old Testament Hebrew and then in the New Testament Greek, the ideas of righteousness and justice were so integrally tied together that you can't just separate them and say, well, I'm good as long as I'm right with God. The idea of justice is a little bit more social in nature. So whether you use that term or not, I don't really care. Um, but that seeking God's justice does relate to how are my neighbors doing? And if I'm going to take seriously that command to love my neighbors as myself, I need to con- be concerned both about the man beaten up on the side of the road to Jericho, but to, to paraphrase Martin Luther King Jr., also about a system that means people keep getting beaten up and robbed on the ro- side of the road to Jericho. Hmm. And, yeah. you know, I think a lot of Christians would affirm that on one set of issues. So they would say that's <laughs> definitely true if we're talking about the unborn, yeah. but maybe not, the, you know, a prison system. And you'd have others who would say almost the inverse. Well, that's true. We should care about immigrants, but we don't have to care about children who aren't born yet. Or, you know, I, and what we're saying is actually a consistent pro-life ethic is, is, you know, seeking justice for those who are vulnerable, which isn't going to be defined by one party's platform. Yeah. Do you we've talked in that. In fact, in the first segment today, we were talking about what it means to be pro-life kind of beyond just abortion. But but when you say that around Christians, around evangelicals, do you do you sense people have a hard time getting their mind around that, that pro-life is just abortion or it's much bigger than that? Do you, do you sense that people have a difficulty with that? You know, I think it varies. And in some ways, I think for like, for example, a lot of younger people, it's um, that's sort of a relief to hear. Not that they are not pro-life in terms of abortion, but they've seen sort of an inconsistency in in a pro-life uh, sort of posture from some Christians, certainly not all, but from some Christians that seems to be sort of ambivalent to a whole set of living people who are vulnerable. Yeah. Um, likewise, I mean, it's interesting. If you look at voting trends between white Christians and black Christians, they're very different. And it's not that their views on issues are all that different. It's that sort of their emphasis on what issues going to control their vote tends to be quite different. Hmm. And I think that, or at least, um, you know, in many cases. So I think that there's a lot of people who really resonate with that idea of a, a pro-life ethic that, that is broader and whole of life, 
but there's definitely some pushback as well. And I think it, the an appropriate critique is, well, is this just trying to avoid the issue of abortion? And I think that's a caution that we need to take. The issue of abortion is important mm-hmm. um, to me personally, uh, it is to us at World Relief. Certainly it is to the National Association of Evangelicals. It's just one of many issues that are that are very important if we value human yeah. life. Yeah, oh, that's really well put, man. That's Matthew Sorens, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy at World Relief, as well as the National Coordinator of the Evangelical Immigration Table. Matt's so nice to join us for yet another segment. One more here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. So Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. As we're joined by a third segment by Matt Sorens, the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy at World Relief. And Matt, before we jump into the next thing, I do have to be honest, you you kind of slipped in in the first segment that you guys had your fourth child, I believe, just four weeks ago, which, uh, A, congratulations, and B, I don't know how you're saying a coherent word, because I remember when we had babies, like for the first two months, you can't get a, you, you're just so sleep deprived. Uh, you getting any sleep? How are you doing it at home right now? Well, you can probably hear the children in the background. We were just talking about that in the commercial break. I apologize, but um, it's huge credit to my wife, Diana. She is primarily responsible at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able, thankfully, to take a few, several weeks off, but I'm back working this week, and I was. I've told several people. I actually think my day job with World Relief uh, is far less stressful than monitoring a five and a six year old in online school. So, uh, happy to be back. Uh, I totally get that. That's really funny. Well, congratulations. Well, uh, you you've been helping every time you're on. You just share all the stuff that I didn't know was going on, and I really do learn, and I'm grateful for that. And another one that you were telling us about in advance of this was the suspension of something called the anti-human trafficking law. We've talked a lot on this show about human trafficking and just how big an issue it is. We've had various people on to talk about it. But could you talk to us a little bit about what this suspension of the key anti-human trafficking law was? Yeah, so it it goes back many years. It was actually signed originally in 2000 and then an updated version by President Bush in 2008. And actually with a lot of advocacy from evangelical Christians, the full name of this law is the William Wilberforce Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, which is, you know, this is what Congress does. They make very long (laughs) titles. So we kind of shorthand it's a TVPRA. And it's basically the nation's premier anti-trafficking law. And it has a whole bunch of really important provisions. And again, this is, uh, I think it's been a policy priority for a lot of evangelical Christians. But I think kind of without a lot of notice, back in March, the Department of Homeland Security put on, on hold, basically suspended some really key elements of this law that relate to how unaccompanied children are treated. So mm. what the law says is, as you can imagine, a child by themselves would be vulnerable to human traffickers and to a host of other uh, problematic, scary things. So when an unaccompanied immigrant child is apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, there's a, a process for how we treat those kids. They're to be turned over from the Border Patrol to the Department of Health and Human Services within 72 hours. And then there's a whole network of, of care providers. Many of them are faith-based organizations, like I have friends at Bethany Christian Services who, who run some of these facilities. And then they basically make sure that they can find either the, one of the child's parents who's already in the U.S. or another relative, make sure it's a safe place to be, or in some cases it's a foster home until the kid can go to immigration court. And some of them qualify to stay because, for example, they qualify for asylum under U.S. law um, or for a special visa for victims of trafficking. And some of them do not qualify to stay. But the aim of the law is to make sure that they're protected in that interim and that they receive that due process. 
So those provisions are things we've been very supportive of at World Relief, and we've been really concerned when they were suspended. And the, the rationale is, is public health, of course, with COVID. But, um, you know, we waited a while to say anything on this because we understand this is a very unique time. But it's been months now, and a lot of our society is back to normal, or at least not normal, but, you know, semi-normal. We really think it is possible to preserve public health and to respect our laws that are designed to protect human trafficking. Because frankly, the threat of trafficking does not diminish in a pandemic. It gets worse. Mm. And so what we did um, back at the end of August, we wrote a letter at World Relief along with um, International Justice Mission, uh, World Vision US, the Faith Alliance Against Slavery and Trafficking. So a number of Christian groups that are really focused on anti-trafficking and child protection. And we wrote it to Ivanka Trump, mostly because she's been sort of the the key spokesperson and advocate for anti-trafficking initiatives within this administration. I'm really hoping that this would get her attention and she could use her considerable influence to persuade the Department of Homeland Security to reconsider this policy. So we, we sent that letter in August. We did get a, a response. We had a, a, you know, a telephone call with some senior leaders at the White House, which we appreciate, but I would say they did not uh, satisfy our concerns. So the policy is still in effect. So we've, um, ben, uh, we have a project at World Relief we call Women of Welcome, um, although I'm not a woman and I've, I'm a part of the community too, so you don't have to be a woman, but mostly it's women, Christian women who are on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find that, just search Facebook or Instagram for Women of Welcome, and they've put together basically a sign-on opportunity to add their voices to that of these Christian ministries leaders, and just this week we had about 25,000 people who'd signed on to awesome. that letter to to Ivanka Trump, so we're going to stay at that. We really hope that they reconsider this policy because it's it's really troubling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I probably should have asked you this at the beginning of when we had you on here, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll do it before you're off here. Uh, people listening right now go to, hey, I got enough problems. Like I, I, I can't worry about refugees. I can't worry about whoever else. Could you talk to us, not just uh, from your own thoughts, but theologically, just kind of biblical background as to why the church and why we as individuals just really must care for the refugees and for the immigrants, uh, what what would you say to that? Yeah, it's a it's a really appropriate question, uh, especially in the you know crazy times like what we're living in. I think it's very natural from a human perspective to say, "I've got my own problems. I'm going to focus on myself and on my family." I don't know that that's an option for us as Christians who take seriously God's word, which compels us, commands us. You know, the greatest commandment, along with to love God as yourself, is to love your neighbor as yourself, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and lest we think, okay, I guess I should love my next door neighbor, but then I've satisfied that requirement. Jesus makes really clear um, when he's asked by a, a, a legal scholar, a lawyer in Luke chapter 10, and he tells the story of the Good Samaritan that that command to love your neighbor is not, you, you can't narrowly define that to people who share your nationality or your religion or your zip code. Um, it, it's defined really broadly. And um in fact, that really goes back to the Old Testament, that, that command to love your neighbor. It's, we find it for the, in the first instance in Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself, obviously God to the Israelites. It's only a few verses later in um, verses 33 and 34, God tells the Israelites, when a foreigner resides with you in your land, you shall not mistreat them. Hmm. The foreigner residing among you shall be to you as your native born. You shall love them as yourselves. And so, um, you know, that's a command for the Israelites, not necessarily to the people of the United States. But I, I think there's a principle there, and we see this in Deuteronomy 10 as well, that God loves these vulnerable groups of people. Um, for the Israelites, it was rooted in their own experience as foreigners in the land of Egypt. That's the end of that verse in Leviticus 19. It's also in Deuteronomy 10. And I think as Americans, the vast majority of us 
have an immigrant history of our own one way or the other, uh, even if it was a forced immigration experience through, you know, we have a history of slavery going back in this country or, you know, people who came under duress, people who came fleeing persecution or poverty, uh, whether they came 500 years ago or they came last week, you know, most of us have those stories. And I think that same rationale that you know what this is like, or your, your people know what this is like, should motivate us to extend compassion, um, whether that's a refugee fleeing persecution or someone fleeing extreme poverty, or certainly, I mean, a, a, a child that, you know, if you've got a 10 year old who is at risk of human trafficking, I would hope, and I, I really do think, you know, in, in my experience in churches, people understand just how, how mm-hmm. horrifying that reality could be. And they want to do whatever they can to stand up for that kid. Absolutely. So Matt, as we close here, again, super grateful for your time. Uh, could you tell us where can people learn where how, maybe how they can serve, how they can volunteer with World Relief, or if they're just looking for more information, where can people go to find those answers? Yeah. Um, so I wish I could give you one easy thing, but just in terms <laughs> of volunteering, if you go to uh, worldrelief.org or here in Chicagoland, um, worldreliefchicago.org, um, and you can find links there to our suburban offices as well. There's both volunteering, giving options. Um, we always need support. And also if worldrelief.org, if you look for advocate, there's advocacy opportunities, um, ways to reach out to your members of Congress, to the White House to say, hey, this is a policy issue that I think is really important. Um, the other resource I'd point people to is the, the Evangelical Immigration Table. As you mentioned, introducing me, I, that's a coalition that I get to help coordinate. Um, and it's just evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. But one of the resources there we're really excited about is a, a Bible reading guide. It's not, again, this is not to tell you who to vote for. It's not about partisanship at all, but there's 40 Bible passages related to God's heart for immigrants. You can find those there and do one per day. It's on the Version Bible app, or you can print it out. Oh, Matt, we're certainly uh, grateful for you coming on. You've been a very generous with our show. We like to call you a friend of the show. Uh, again, that's Matt Sorens, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization at World Relief and the National Coordinator of the Evangelical Immigration Table. Matt, thanks for coming on. Congratulations on the new baby. Hope you get some sleep here soon, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about hypocrisy. We're going to talk about community. And then how can social media be used for good and our discipleship? That's coming up here on The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Again, another beautiful day. Rumor is that it's about to turn and get a little bit cooler. Uh, so enjoy what we've got today. It's a windy day, but uh, but just a pleasant day in the Chicagoland area. These are the days we're going to look back on in January and February and be like, oh, do you remember just those, those just kind of nice, brisk fall days? Uh, it's just beautiful out there. So we hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're able to get outside and enjoy it a little bit. But we're glad to have you with us. As a reminder, a couple different places you can find us. The first is on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. It's the Common Good Radio Show. There you can find uh, articles we've discussed, interviews we've done. Go ahead and join the conversation there with other people. Uh, also online at 1160hope.com. Uh, you can find old shows there. And uh, the best place you could go if you want to listen to things that you've missed is our podcast. Uh, go to the podcast, get it wherever you get podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. 
And uh, go ahead and do that. That helps other people find the show more easily. And uh, we are grateful for the many of you who do podcast the show. As we said, Ian Simpkins, our, my co-host, is out of town for the week, but will be joining us again on Monday. If you missed our interview with Matt Sorens uh, or yesterday's interview with Dr. Philip Reichen, the president of Wheaton College, we would uh, strongly encourage you to go, uh, go find those on our Facebook page uh, or on the podcast and check them out. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the concept or the, or the idea of hypocrisy. And I want to talk about it in the political sphere. And I, I want to, I want you to wrestle with something. I want you to wrestle if what I'm about to play for you is hypocrisy or if it is something else. And, um, I, I wonder because this is something I've heard going back and forth. What we're going to play here in a minute, not quite yet, but we're going to play in a minute is, uh, John MacArthur. There's also some clips from this same conference of Dr. Albert Moeller, but we're going to play John MacArthur at the Shepherds Conference in 2016. This is, I believe, just before the election when which President Trump got elected. Uh, and let's listen to it. Listen to what John MacArthur says at the Shepherds Conference here in 2016. Remember the moral majority when moral meant something? And now we have a guy running for president being advocated by Christian university presidents and pastors who who is a... Um, public adulterer, multiple marriage. Does family mean anything? Does anybody care about family? Uh, when you've lived with women that weren't your wife while you were married to other ones and had a, paraded your sexual exploits in a book. And so, so what happened to the moral majority? Evangelicalism used to kind of be equated with the moral majority. Uh, morality doesn't define us anymore. That this So interestingly, in 2016, uh, John MacArthur said, uh, basically called into question any Christian who would dare vote for Donald Trump. Uh, he is candidate Trump at the time. Uh, but he said some really strong things there. Also on the stage with him is Albert Moeller. And Albert Moeller in 2016 uh, was very forceful about uh, people being uh, willing to vote for Donald Trump because of his past adultery. Uh, because of his penchant to lying and all this stuff that was going on in 2016. And uh, they were trying to encourage people to vote for specifically for other Republicans and uh, not for President Trump. Fast forward four years later, and John MacArthur was recently quoted as saying that if you're that nobody could be I'm going to paraphrase here, but he basically said nobody could be a Christian and vote for anybody other than President Trump. You can't vote for Joe Biden, was his words, and be an actual Christian. Robert Jeffers said the same thing. Jack Graham said the same thing. And Albert Moeller came out within the last month or two explaining that in this go-around, where in 2016, he was what was known as a never-Trumper, right? I'm not going to vote for Hillary Clinton, but I'm also not going to vote for President Trump, or at that time, candidate Trump. Uh, but this year, he, he has come out and said he is going to cast his vote for President Trump, despite uh, some of the character flaws he sees in Donald Trump. And, and so my question for you is, uh, do you think this is hypocrisy or do you think this is just politics? Do you think that this calls into question the character of some of these pastors and leaders like Albert Moeller, like John MacArthur, like Robert Jeffers? Uh, and the like? Or do you think, listen, we live in a system in which there are only two candidates 
And I'm, it's okay to choose the lesser of two evils or not even the lesser of two evils if you don't think that. But instead to say, I believe strongly that the policies and the things that go around President Trump are better for Christians or better for the nation than if there was a, a Biden administration. Uh, there's other things to think about. Dr. James Dobson, who's kind of been off the scene for a little while, but you know him from Focus on the Family for many years. Uh, in 1998, uh, Dr. Dobson was came out incredibly strong uh, against Bill Clinton in the impeachment. It was it was um, it was uh, James Dobson who was at the middle of it. In fact, there is a letter that's been published that he wrote uh, in the midst of the Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky scandal that he wrote to his constituency. Basically, it's a really long letter that says you in, under no circumstances could we have somebody who's doing the things that Bill Clinton is doing in office and that he must be impeached uh, the, because of the lying, because of the sexual immorality. And at the same time, Dr. Dobson in 2016, uh, he's the one who claimed that Donald Trump had a born again experience, called him a baby Christian and joined his evangelical advisory board. Uh, and a lot of people said, well, is that hypocrisy or is that just, again, um, politics? And so I wanted to throw that out there. I'm not sure I have a great answer to this. I think you could answer this question both ways. I think you could get at this from both ways. And, and I think legitimate uh, thinking Christians do. I think for other people, there is just a uh, partisan uh, hypocrisy as a part of this. So I think that is true for some. I think some, because Bill Clinton was a Democrat, they went after him and are unwilling to go after the Republican president for much the similar things. Uh, but I do totally understand people going, listen, I'm, I'm weighing the policies on both sides. I'm weighing the candidates. I'm not thrilled with either of them, or maybe I am thrilled with one of them. Uh, but I'm just going to kind of hold my nose and vote for this one, not knowing that it's not uh, it's not perfect. Now, where I do think we have a problem is when people like MacArthur or Jeffers or others say that you can't be a Christian. You can't be a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, Christ-following Christian and not vote for Donald Trump. You can't vote for Joe Biden or a Democrat and not, uh, and be a Christian at the same time. I think that's, um, I think that's preposterous and I think that's dangerous. And, and I think we need to be really careful about that. And I've got reasons if you're curious about them. But again, uh, we would really love to know what you have to think about this. But I do think it's much more nuanced than that. And that, uh, there are strong Christians on either side of the aisle right now wrestling with, uh, who do I vote for and what do I do? So we're going to put some of this up on our Facebook page. I know that video clip is already up there. Uh, hypocrisy or just politics, uh, or, it, do the two not have to do with each other? What MacArthur said in 16 versus what he has said in 2020. Curious what you think, folks. Go to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Let us know your opinion. Uh, I'm sure some of you have an opinion. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Chris Gould about something going on here uh, at the radio station and Salem Media uh, a virtual pastor's appreciation conference. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is out of town enjoying some vacation with his family for the week. We're excited for him to be back with us on Monday. Uh, And for this segment, we are excited to be joined by Chris Gould. Chris is a senior VP with Salem Media, uh, Salem Media, of which our station is part of. And uh, Chris is joining us today. Uh, to talk about something really interesting we're doing here at the station. Uh, Chris, before we get into this, thanks for joining us, man. How are you doing? Hey, doing well. Uh, Brian, good to be with you. Sorry to miss Ian, but mm-hmm. uh, I'll just write that down here in my little <laughs> Again, when we when we renegotiate contracts, I want to make sure this comes up. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. Exactly. So you're you're kind enough to come on to talk about the WILL virtual pastors appreciation event. You know, even before I worked at the station, I went to some of the pastors appreciation stuff the WILL put on. But uh, mm-hmm. it was always a breakfast or it was always a golf outing. It was stuff yeah. where we gathered. But obviously, in the midst of COVID-19, our new reality is that's just not possible. But you guys, we're still wanting to do something for the pastors. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the WILL virtual pastors appreciation event, how it got started, what it is. Sure. Thank you so much. Again, great to be on in the Chicagoland area on WILL. Well, uh, uh, Brian, 27 years ago, we started the first pastors appreciation event. It was in the Bay Area, San Francisco, and it was just a uh, just an idea to want to uh, appreciate and honor the local pastors in that community. And our GM there at the time uh, rented out a, a church basement. Uh, the pastors <laughs> gathered, you know, in folding on folding chairs and ate uh, you know little sandwiches on paper plates. Chuck Swindoll came in to encourage the pastors, and and that was the the uh, the birth of this phenomenon. Last year, we reached 30,000 pastors all all across the United States at Salem events from coast to coast. And as you mentioned in Chicago, uh, your station's been doing just a fabulous job of um, inventing whether it's a breakfast or a lunch or a dinner or whatever it's been over the years. And the concept is really simple, just to honor and appreciate pastors. There's a chance for uh, fellowship for connection, uh, generally a f- you know a free meal, some corporate worship, and then we always bring in just a top shelf national speaker to be able to encourage the pastors. We always try to encourage uh, pastors by having pastors speak to pastors, right? So that's a key. So, for instance, with this virtual event, uh, episode number one. Uh, was hosted by John MacArthur. He knows a little thi- a thing or two about being a pastor. He's been <laughs> a pastor at Grace Community Church since 1969. So he's got a little bit to, to share with us. And then um, he was joined by Tony Evans, um, the pastor down in Dallas, Texas. So uh, the, the idea was simple in person. But as you said, due to COVID, we just decided we were going to put this into a virtual format. And it's really come off beautifully well. Yeah. And I'm curious, Chris, is this, I know it's a pastor's appreciation event, but some people might be hearing, gosh, I'd like to listen to John MacArthur. I'd like to listen to Tony Evans. Is this only for pastors or would this be beneficial for non-pastors to watch as well? 
Yeah, we kept the same name. It's been, we've kind of called it the Pastors Appreciation Event for many years in, in most of the markets across the country. Some have changed the name, but we kept it the same. But it's really for anybody in leadership, any kind of ministry position. Uh, it's free to watch the content. You do have to register. But really, anyone would be encouraged by hearing these messages. Yeah, absolutely. So how do I access it? How does somebody out there, uh, how can they watch this content? And I know you mentioned that it was free, uh, which us pastors always like to hear that. You named two of them free and free meal. Like those are two things <laughs> us pastors love. But how do we go about finding the content and, and watching the content? Yeah, well, for instance, uh, for you guys, um, you've you've got AM 1160, mm-hmm. Hope for Your Life, right? So uh, if you were to go to the website and um, uh, just go to the home page of AM 1160, W-I-L-L, right there on the front page is uh, your chance to register. There's a little banner right there. You just click click in, fill out the form, take you about 30 seconds. You could register with your Facebook account if you wanted to, and then boom, you'd be able to see the content. Now, uh, we're releasing new content every Thursday in the month of October, Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right now, if you signed up, you could watch the two previous versions right now on demand. So you could see that episode with John MacArthur, Tony Evans, Matthew West does the corporate worship. Uh, episode number two was Dr. Paul Cannings from Houston and Alistair Begg from Truth for Life and for King and Country does the uh, corporate worship. So it's really fantastic curated content designed to minister to pastors and ministry leaders. So, uh, and then this Thursday we'll have a new episode that'll be released. Um, No one knows this yet, but you're, it's just you and me here on the the call. So Uh Sam Sam Rodriguez is going to be bringing the message on Thursday. Uh, he's a pastor up in Sacramento and mm-hmm. leads up to Hispanic uh, Christian Conference across America. And Dr. Brian Chapel, you know, as a pastor, you probably used Brian Chapel's textbook, Christ-Centered Preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Brian Chapel is the preacher who teaches preachers how to preach. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, That's so, right. <laughs> so, so he does a great job of encouraging pastors. And, uh, and that, that, all that content is going to be available on Thursday at 10 o'clock. I'm curious, uh, maybe uh, it's been out for a couple of weeks. As you said, it's rolling out each week. What kind of feedback are you getting from people as they've taken in this content so far? Yeah, uh, it, amazing feedback. Great appreciation. Thanks. I mean, again, you know, there's no way to replace the fellowship. There's no way to replace the corporate worship when 500 pastors sing, um, you know, how great thou art, you know, there's something about that that you can't duplicate here. But, um, you know, thousands and thousands of pastors have already dialed in and and the feedback has been very, very positive. So we're grateful to have provided it and uh, grateful to be able to meet the need. Listen, I don't have to tell you, Brian, Mm -hmm. the load is heavy for pastors right now. I mean, it's extremely heavy. So it's a welcome respite. It's a cool drink of water during a difficult season. 
Absolutely. Again, you could go to uh, 1160hope.com and there find the virtual pastor appreciation. And like uh, Chris has been telling us, just some fabulous speakers. Ian and I have often talked about how the first time we heard Tony Evans, we both thought to ourselves separately, we should never preach ever again. (laughs) (laughs) That it was just that intimidating. Chris, you've done a great job. But with the last minute we have left, uh, maybe there's somebody out there listening going, "Okay, I don't know. Why don't you give us just a minute's worth of encouragement to somebody to say, no, no, you need this, whether you're a pastor or a ministry leader. One more encouragement for somebody to go to the website and check out the Virtual Pastors Appreciation. Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Well, at at Salem, Brian, I mean, our our philosophy for years has been that we're here to support the local church. We're not to supplant it. We can't become the local church. All we can do is come alongside the local church and the local pastor. And Jesus said in his word, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the way he does that is through local churches led by local pastors. And frankly, we believe, as Al Mohler wrote in the foreword to a great book called On Being a Pastor, written by Alistair Begg, the first line of that foreword says, the Christian pastor holds the greatest office of human responsibility in all creation. Hmm. So, Pastor, if that's you, we honor you, we salute you, we've designed this content just for you and hope that you'll take advantage of it. That's great. Well, Chris Gould, uh, Senior Vice President at Salem Media, we're really glad that you joined us today from all the way out in California, sunny California. Chris, thanks for doing this, man. It's good to talk to you again. Uh, Our pleasure. Thanks so much. All the best. You too, absolutely. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Over at the Gospel Coalition, Erwin Ince, uh, he wrote an article called this, The Call and Cost of Beautiful Church Community. The Call and Cost of Beautiful Church Community. And before we jump into this article by Erwin Ince, uh, I, I do want to say that uh, something we've talked about here often on the show is this. I love that he calls it beautiful church community, that the church is meant to be a community. The church is meant to be uh, not a building. Uh, the church is not primarily an organization, but the church is primarily a people, a family, a community. And that's hard. That's beautiful. It's all of it, all re- all in one. And here, Erwin Ince, uh, just today or two days ago, released this article called The Call and Cost of Beautiful Church Community. If you would, let me just jump into this here. He writes, humanity as the image of God is stamped from the beginning for beautiful community. That is, we're marked out for a God-glorifying life of unity and diversity. Think about that. Let's pause there already. We are marked out for a God-glorifying life of unity in diversity. That's the that's the key there, that we are called as the church to have unity uh, in our diversity, that we are not to have uniformity. The goal is not uniformity in which we all look the same Uh, talk the same, vote the same, make the same amount of money. And that's not the goal. And that's all too often become the goal. But the goal is not uniformity. The goal is God glorifying unity in diversity. He continues this. This is where God is taking humanity. 
We're fractured and divided, but he's going to knit the human race together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the church is called to pursue beautiful community in the here and now as a witness to the world of the Holy Spirit's reconciling power. <laughs> There's so much good stuff here. The church is called to pursue beautiful community, which he already taught, he already defined as unity in diversity, that we're to pursue beautiful community in the here and now, not just in the future when every tongue, tribe, and nation will be before the throne of God, but in the here and now as a witness to the world so that the world looks at the church and says, there's something different about them. There's something crazy about those people. They look different than the fractured, disunified nation and culture that we're a part of. And it's the Holy Spirit that's being testified to. He goes on to say, experiencing community, though, means experiencing a sense of belonging, of welcome and embrace a sense of being at home. It's the exact opposite of feeling you'd rather be someplace else. Since beautiful community is a matter of the spirit and can't be engineered, there's a cost to becoming the kind of people who welcome and embrace fellow image bearers across lines of difference. He's going to talk about the cost. He says, Patrick, that's a pseudonym, not his real name, immigrated to America from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He's a member of a diverse church in a Midwestern city. When I interviewed him several years ago, I asked him to tell me about a time when he experienced an awareness of his cultural difference at church. He said, I remember one day a really good friend of mine at church, a white guy, said, I have clothes to give you. I said, sure, yeah, that's good. Then he came by with a bag of old T-shirts. I took it because I didn't want to shame him, but I didn't wear those T-shirts. I tell friends of mine, if you want to give, don't give something you're tired of. Give something you have in your heart. My friend devalued me by giving me old T-shirts. Did he think that I can't afford $10 T-shirts? See, Patrick's friend was operating with a common assumption, implicit biases about him as an African immigrant. It's not, unlikely, it's not likely that his friend was intending to offend him. And it's the evidence of the Spirit's work in Patrick's heart that he didn't leave in a huff and cancel his friend for offending him. See, you and I would be hard-pressed to find a church that openly says, we don't believe in hospitality. We're not interested in welcoming people. Churches strive to welcome and embrace. This need is so common and understood that developing hospitality for the, co for the community falls on, so on some group. It may be the usher board. It may be the diaconate. It, a church may create a specific hospitality or welcome committee. This is a key facet of loving our neighbors. People have a God-given longing for intimate community. We want to belong and experience a sense of being at home. See, while churches place a high value on being a welcoming place, we're regularly unaware of the ways that our preference uh, for sameness hinders that experienced by those who are different racially, ethnically, socioeconomically from the majority of congregants, right? In his November 4th, 1956 sermon, Paul's letter to American Christians, Martin Luther King said this, you must face the tragic fact that when you stand at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning to sing in Christ, there is no East or West. You stand in the most segregated hour in Christian America. There's a reason why the gist of the statement remains far too true for more than six decades later. I posit that at least part of the reason is that we don't believe that we're incomplete without those different neighbors finding belonging among us. Hospitable communities recognize uh, they're incomplete without other people, and they believe others have a treasure to share with their community. Let me pause there again. Hospitable communities recognize they're incomplete without other people. Do you, we as churches believe that we are incomplete if we don't have a picture, if we are not a picture of diversity, of unity in diversity of this beautiful community he's talking about? Are we incomplete? 
He goes on to say community for the edge people research shows that turnover rates within religious organizations are higher for numerical minority groups than for majority groups. Uh, edge people uh, that he talks about uh, that you got your core of members from a church and ed- edge members uh, are those who are atypical to the organization. He says edge people usually pay a price to experience and pursue belonging with the core. I'm privileged to have frequent opportunities, says, to preach and speak at a variety of churches across the country. And most of these churches, even the statistically diverse ones, whites are in the majority. It's typically the case that the people of color in these churches want to meet with me for a time of fellowship while I'm in town. They want to discuss challenges. Uh, Invariably, they respond to the question, what does it cost you to be here that no one at the church has ever asked them a question like that? See, hospitality involves a cost for the core or the majority culture congregants. And he ends by saying this, living for one another. See, the COVID-19 pandemic, he says, has forced our churches to push pause, to readjust, to imagine a road back to normal. What if, he says, as we gather for worship, we also reimagine our pursuit of beautiful community? What preferences have morphed into idols that need to be destroyed? What preferences do we need to loosen our grip on for the sake of extending the grace and love of Christ to diverse neighbors? Our freedom in the Christian community is the freedom to lay down our lives for my brothers and sisters. Our liberty as Christians is the liberty to die to our preferences, the liberty to die to our disordered desire for pleasure. Our freedom as Christians is the freedom to say to our neighbors, we want to see you grow toward maturity in Christ. Our heart's desire is to do everything we can to edify you, to build you up in the faith, to see you come to maturity in Christ. And this is something we are to pursue, building each other up, edifying one another, and pleasing one another. And he ends by simply saying, that's beautiful community. This article here, uh, written by uh, Erwin Ince uh, from the Grace DC Presbyterian Church and also the director of Grace DC Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission and a council member for the Gospel Coalition. This is up on our Facebook page, a beautifully written article called The Call and the Cost of Beautiful Church Community. We talk about community often, uh, and, and but what are the costs? What is it going to take to have, as he says, this God-edifying community in the midst of uh, unity, in the midst of our diversity? What will that look like? That's up on our Facebook page the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show by talking about four ways social media can be good and be leveraged for our discipleship. That's coming up next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Normally joined by Ian Simkins, but Ian is out for the week. We'll be back on Monday. Really thankful for those of you who've joined us over the last couple of days. We've had lots of great guests from uh, uh, Matthew Sorens today to uh, Dr. Philip Riken from Wheaton College yesterday, and uh, all sorts of some authors and some pastors. So we often talk on this show. Uh, Ian and I spend a lot of times kind of trying to help people understand uh, some of the pitfalls of social media. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever else it might be, talking about uh, rightfully so that there are some real dangers, some real uh, concerns that we should have uh, about how we act on social media, uh, but also um, how uh, it's forming us. Uh, we talk a lot about algorithms and and echo chambers, and especially in this po- uh, political time, about the things that get kind of fed to us 
through social media. And so uh, if you listen to the show for any amount of time, kind of rightfully so, you'll you'll get the impression that that we want to at least throw up the yellow flag with social media and, and give some of the cautions and try to ask people. Uh, be careful not only what you're looking at, but what you're saying on there and how you're representing yourself on there. But I thought the, there there are some really good aspects to social media besides just the enjoyment and the information of it. Uh, it can provide some other things. So with that in mind, I wanted to end today with an article from Facts and Trends. Uh, this factsandtrends.net uh, written by Luke Holmes. And it's just called Four Ways Social Media Can Be Leveraged for Discipleship. Okay, four ways that it can be leveraged for discipleship. So I thought this was an important way to end because, again, it gives a positive spin to social media. And if Ian was here, uh, he would point out that it gives us another list to look at, which I love a list. So here we go. It says this. Luke Holmes writes, I had a conversation with another pastor about two church members of my church who were fighting on Facebook. He lectured me a little bit about the need to be careful with social media. He's 30 years or so older than me and told me, this is why I'm not friends with young people on Facebook. They just don't know how to control themselves. What we didn't know was that the two church members at odds with one another on a public forum were a 75-year-old and an 85-year-old. Uh, parenthetically, I think a lot of younger people would say that's, the, uh, that's who's on Facebook now. So uh, he goes on to say, the world of social media is difficult for almost everyone to navigate, even for, quote, digital natives. The rules change so quickly that it can be hard to keep up with figuring out how to handle how to handle conflict, differing opinions and even threats on social media. The world we live in is increasingly divided and it's easiest to see those divisions online. There are many ways a person can get in trouble online and social media often makes it all worse. But there are also uh, many advantages to sharing online. Social media can be a blessing instead of a burden. There's the line, right? We often talk about the burden that it is, but here it's saying social media can be, when used correctly, a blessing instead of a burden. He goes on to say, Paul gives an admonition to the church in Colossians to, quote, set their minds on things above. And social media can be a tool that you can use to help others do that. Jesus's command to go and make disciples made no provision for which methods to use to do that. Social media can be valuable addition to other discipleship models or methods. It even allows us to have a presence with those we wouldn't otherwise. Social media is often the first thing people check in the morning. For most of it, it's a habit, one done without even thinking. If we know where to start our day in God's word, but we know that most of our friends, family, and fellow church members are going to check Facebook first, how can we work to combine the two? Social media and God's words could God's word could not be farther apart, except for the fact that it enables us to put scripture in front of people in ways we never could have a few years ago. Sharing a Bible verse instead of your thoughts on last night's game is a good way to help people focus on things above. Sharing short clips from sermons, songs you sing in church or quotes from a different people from different people are all great ways to help people turn their mind towards God. It's also a way to introduce people to writers, thinkers, musicians and theologians that they would never have heard of otherwise. See, social media can be a tool to broaden people's minds instead of just narrowing their viewpoint to one side of of the facts. Here are some ways. Here's the list. Here are some ways that you can share positive things to help encourage people in their walk with God. So let's end with some positive today. And maybe you'll hear some things about social media here where you could be like, okay, maybe we can do that. Number one, uh, share a verse from, uh, from your quiet time in the morning. Don't spend 20 minutes getting the right shot of your coffee and open Bible through the right filter. Just type in the verse and share it. 
Many people won't reach for their Bible in the morning, but they'll reach for their phone. So do what you can do to make sure they see something that edifies. Don't make a big scene about how God showed up in your quiet time. Just let the power of God's word speak for itself. Number two, share something that challenges. A verse is good, but easy to scroll by. Share something that makes them think, that challenges the heart and the head and shares the gospel. Number three, share something that you're thankful for. Social media is often full of negativity. So share about a blessing in life you're thankful for, or better yet, share with someone in particular how you're thankful for their life and witness of something that you're thankful for. And number four, share a song that edifies and glorifies Jesus. What you hear first in the morning often sticks in your head all day long. When you share that worship song that you can help place God's word in someone else's mind all day, go find a version of the song and share it first thing in the morning. Let me be clear. Sharing spiritual growth content on social media isn't a substitute for real life, face-to-face, in-person discipleship. Don't share a verse and think you're fulfilling God's commands. Social media, though, is an additional way, he writes, to get God's word in front of God's people. I'm not saying you shouldn't share your thoughts on last night's game, but be intentional about your social media use. Social media, he ends this way, can be a gift and a tool to continually put Christ in front of others and family. Use it wisely. That's Luke Holmes, uh, pastor at First Baptist Church in uh, Tishomingo, Oklahoma. Those last three words might be the most important ones and ones that I want to leave with you. When thinking about social media, what you're posting, what you're liking, what you're commenting on, what you're doing, just the general focus of your social media profile, what you're trying to accomplish, those three words at the end are the ones that I want to leave you with. When it comes to social media, to use the words of this article, use it wisely. Don't be flippant. Don't be derogatory. Don't be uh, argumentative and combative, but use it wisely. And then it could become a tool uh, to not just encourage people, edify people, make people think, uh, put God's word in front of people, but it can be literally a a tool used to glorify God uh, and to make him known to other people. So I wanted to get that into your hands here. You can find that on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show, this article from Facts and Trends, four ways social media can be leveraged for discipleship. Give them a try. Let's see if we can, as a, as a group, can start using social media in positive ways for people and not just ways that hurt people or tear them down or make them angry. Use it wisely. Well, thanks again for joining us today. If you missed any of our interviews, Matt Sorens or others, you can find them at our Facebook page, also our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, and review. We'll be back at it with some great guests tomorrow from four until six. We're glad that you joined us today. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.